0: Chapter 3 of Life of Charles Dickens. This is a LibriVox recording. All LibriVox recordings are in the public domain. For more information, or to volunteer, please visit LibriVox.org. Recording by Colleen McMahon. Life of Charles Dickens by Frank Marzials. Chapter 3 Dickens has told us, in his preface to the later editions, much of how Pickwick came to be projected and published. It was in this wise. Seymour, a caricaturist of very considerable merit, though not as we should now consider in the first rank of the great caricaturists, had proposed to Messrs. Chapman and Hall, then just starting on their career as publishers, a series of Cockney sporting-plates. Messrs. Chapman and Hall entertained the idea favorably, but opined that the plates would require illustrative letter-press, and casting about for some suitable author, bethought themselves of Dickens, whose tales and sketches had been exciting some little sensation in the world of journalism, and who had, indeed, already written for the firm a story, The Tugs at Ramsgate, which may be read among the sketches. Accordingly, Mr. Hall called on Dickens for the purpose of proposing the scheme. This would be, in 1835, towards the latter end of the year, and Dickens, who had apparently left the paternal roof for some little time, was living bachelor-wise in Furnival's Inn. What was his astonishment, when Mr. Hall came in, to find he was the same person who had sold him the copy of the magazine containing his first story, that memorable copy at which he had looked in Westminster Hall, through eyes bedimmed with joyful tears? Such coincidences always had for Dickens a peculiar, almost a superstitious, interest. The circumstance seemed of happy augury to both the high contracting parties publisher and author were for the nonce on the best of terms the latter no doubt saw his opening was more than ready to undertake the work and had no quarrel with the remuneration offered but even then he was not the man to play second fiddle to anybody before they parted he had quite succeeded in turning the tables on seymour the original proposal had been that the artist should produce four caricatures on sporting subjects every month and that the letterpress should be an illustration of the caricatures. Dickens got Mr. Hall to agree to reverse that position. He, Dickens, was to have the command of the story. The artist was to illustrate him. How far these altered relations would have worked quite smoothly if Seymour had lived, and if Dickens' story had not so soon assumed the proportions of a colossal success, it is idle to speculate Seymour died by his own hand before the second number was published, and so ceased to be in a position to assert himself. It was, however, in deference to the peculiar bent of his art, that Mr. Winkle, with his disastrous sporting proclivities, made part of the first conception of the book, and it is also very significant of the book's origin, that the design on the green wrapper in which the monthly parts made their appearance should have had a purely sporting character. And exhibited Mr. Pickwick sleepily fishing in a punt, and Mr. Winkle shooting at what looks like a cock-sparrow, the whole surrounded by a chased arabesque of guns, rods, and landing nets. To Seymour, too, we owe the portrait of Mr. Pickwick, which has impressed that excellent old gentleman's face and figure upon all our memories. But to return to Dickens' interview with Mr. Hall. They seem to have parted in mutual satisfaction, At least it is certain Dickens was satisfied, for in a letter written apparently on the same day to my dearest Kate, he thus sums up the proposals of the publishers. They've made me an offer of fourteen pounds a month to write and edit a new publication they contemplate, entirely by myself, to be published monthly, and each number to contain four woodcuts. The work will be no joke, but the emolument is too tempting to resist. End of quote. Footnote See the letters published by Chapman and Hall. End of footnote. So, little thinking how soon he would begin to regard the emolument as ludicrously inadequate, he set to work on Pickwick. The first part was published on the 31st of March, or 1st of April, 1836. That part seems scarcely to have created any sensation. Mr. James Grant, the novelist, says, indeed, that the first five parts were a dead failure, and that the publishers were even debating whether the enterprise had not better be abandoned altogether, when suddenly Sam Weller appeared upon the scene and turned their gloom into laughter. Be that as it may, certain it is that before many months had passed, Messrs. Chapman and Hall must have been thoroughly confirmed in a policy of perseverance. The first order for part one, that is, the first order for binding, was, says the bookbinder who executed the work, for four hundred copies only, the order for part 15 had risen to 40,000. All contemporary accounts agree that the success was sudden, immense. The author, like Lord Byron, some 25 years before, awoke and found himself famous. Young as he was, not having yet numbered more than 24 summers, he at one stride reached the topmost height of popularity. Everybody read his book. Everybody laughed over it. Everybody talked about it. Everybody felt, confusedly perhaps, but very surely, that a new and vital force had arisen in English literature. And English literature just then was in one of its times of slackness, rather than full flow. The great tide of the beginning of the century had ebbed, the tide of the Victorian age had scarcely begun to do more than ripple and flash on the horizon. Byron was dead, and Shelley and Keats and Coleridge and Lamb, Southey's life was on the decline. Wordsworth had long executed his best work while of the coming men Carlyle though in the plenitude of his power having published Sartor Resartus had not yet published his French Revolution footnote it was finished in january 1837 and not published till six months afterwards end of footnote Carlyle though in the plenitude of his power having published Sartor Resartus had not yet published his French Revolution or delivered his lectures on the heroes, and was not yet in the plenitude of his fame and influence, and Macaulay, then in India, was known only as the essayist and politician, and Lord Tennyson and the Brownings were more or less names of the future. Looking especially at fiction, the time may be said to have been waiting for its master novelist. Five years had gone by since the good and great Sir Walter Scott had been laid to rest in Dryburg Abbey, there to sleep, as is most fit, among the ruins of that old middle-aged world he loved so well, with the babble of the tweed for lullaby. Nor had any one shown himself of stature to step into his vacant place, albeit Bulwer, more precocious even than Dickens, was already known as the author of Pelham, Eugene Aram, and The Last Days of Pompeii, and Disraeli had written Vivian Gray and his earlier books. While Thackeray, Charlotte Bronte, Kingsley, George Eliot, were all of course to come later. No, there was a vacant throne among the novelists. Here was the hour, and here, too, was the man. In virtue of natural kingship, he took up his scepter unquestioned. Still, it may not be superfluous to inquire into the why and wherefore of his success. All effects have a cause. What was the cause of this special phenomenon? In the first place, the admirable freshness of the book won its way into every heart. There is a fervor of youth and healthy good spirits about the whole thing. In a former generation, Byron had uttered his wail of despair over a worthless world. We in our own time have got back to the dreary point of considering whether life be worth living. Here was a writer who had no such misgivings. For him, life was pleasant, useful, full of delight, to be not only tolerated, but enjoyed. He liked its sights, its play of character, its adventures affected no superiority to its amusements and convivialities, thoroughly laid himself out to please and to be pleased, and his characters were in the same mood. Their fund of animal spirits seemed inexhaustible. For life's jollities they were never unprepared. No doubt they were mighty mean moments in their existence, as there have been in the existence of most of us. It cannot have been pleasant to Mr Winkle to have his eye blackened by the obstreperous cabman. Mr. Tracy Tupman probably felt a passing pang when jilted by the maiden aunt in favor of the audacious jingle. No man would elect to occupy the position of defendant in an action for breach of promise, or prefer to sojourn in a debtor's prison. But how jauntily do Mr. Pickwick and his friends shake off such discomforts! How buoyantly do they override the billows that beset their course! and what excellent digestions they have, and how slightly do they seem to suffer the next day from any little excesses in the matter of milk-punch. Then besides the good spirits and good temper there is Dickens' royal gift of humour. As some actors have only to show their face and utter a word or two in order to convulse an audience with merriment, so here does almost every sentence hold good and honest laughter. Not, perhaps, objects the superfine and too-dainty critic humor of the most delicate sort not humor that for its rare and exquisite quality can be placed beside the masterpieces in that kind of lamb or stern or goldsmith or washington irving granted freely not humor of that special character but very good humor nevertheless the thoroughly popular humor of broad comedy and obvious farce the humor that finds its account where absurd characters are placed in ridiculous situations that delights in the oddities of the whimsical and eccentric, that irradiates stupidity and makes dullness amusing. How thoroughly wholesome it is, too. To be at the same time merry and wise, says the old adage, is a hard combination. Dickens was both. With all his boisterous merriment, his volleys of inextinguishable laughter, he never makes game of what is at all worthy of respect. Here, as in his later books, right is right and wrong wrong and he is never tempted to jingle his jester's bell out of season and make right look ridiculous. And if the humor of Pickwick be wholesome, it is also most genial and kindly. We have here no acrid cynic sneeringly pointing out the plague-spots of humanity and showing pleasantly how even the good are tainted with evil. Rather does Dickens delight in finding some touch of goodness, some lingering memory of better things, some hopeful aspiration, some trace of unselfish devotion in characters where all seems soddened and lost. In brief, the laughter is the laughter of one who sees the foibles and even the vices of his fellow men, and yet looks on them lovingly and helpfully. So much the first readers of Pickwick might note as the book unfolded itself to them part by part, and they might also note one or two things besides. They might note they could scarcely fail to do so, that though there was a touch of caricature in nearly all the characters yet those characters were one and all wonderfully real and very much alive it was no world of shadows to which the author introduced them mr pickwick had a very distinct existence and so had his three friends and bob sawyer and benjamin allen and mr jingle and tony weller and all the swarm of minor characters while as to sam weller If it be really true that he averted impending ruin from the book and turned defeat into victory, one can only say that it was like him. When did he ever stint stroke in Falton Field? By what array of adverse circumstances was he ever taken at a disadvantage? To have created a character of this vitality, of this individual force, would be a feather in the cap of any novelist who ever lived." something I think of Dickens' own blood passed into the special progeniture of his. It has been irreverently said that Falstaff might represent Shakespeare in his cups, just as Hamlet might represent him in his more sober moments. So I have always had a kind of fancy that Sam Weller might be regarded as Dickens himself seen in a certain aspect, a sort of Dickens, shall I say, in a humbler sphere of life, and who had never devoted himself to literature. There is in both the same energy, pluck, essential goodness of heart, fertility of resource, abundance of animal spirits, and also an imagination of a peculiar kind, in which wit enters as a main ingredient. And having noted how highly vitalized were the characters in Pickwick, I think the first readers might also fairly be expected to note, and in fact it is clear from Dickens' preface that they did note, how greatly the book increased in scope and power as it proceeded the beginning was conceived almost in a spirit of farce. The incidents and adventures had scarcely any other object than to create amusement. Mr. Pickwick himself appeared on the scene with fantastic honors and the badge of absurdity, as, quote, the man who had traced to their source the mighty ponds of Hampstead, and agitated the scientific world with a theory of tittlebats. bats end of quote. But in all this there is a gradual change, Mr. Pickwick is presented to us latterly as an exceedingly sound-headed as well as sound-hearted old gentleman, whom we should never think of associating with the sources of Hampstead Ponds or any other folly. While in such scenes as those at the Fleet Prison, the author is clearly endeavouring to do much more than raise a laugh. He is sounding the deeper, more tragic chords in human feeling. Ah, if we add to all this, to the freshness, the go, the good spirits, the keen observation, the graphic painting, the humor, the vitality of the characters, the gradual development of power. If we add to all this that something which is in all and greater than all, viz. genius, and genius of a highly popular kind, then we shall have no difficulty in understanding why everybody read Pickwick, and how it came to pass that its publishers made some twenty thousand pounds by a work they had once thought of abandoning as worthless. Footnote. They acknowledged to Dickens that they had made fourteen thousand pounds by the sale of the monthly parts alone. End of footnote. End of chapter three. Recording by Colleen McMahon.